When I was growing up, my family used to make long road trips. We would all bundle into our 1970 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser station wagon. Bah, my word, that was a tank. Green and brown and by our standards today, ugly. But boy, we loved it. It had a little moonroof so you could look out. It had this great big back you could play in, except when it was filled with fishing equipment. And in the inside, it just, it just rode like a tank. I'm sure if we'd had a major accident, the car would have been fine. We would have been strawberry jam. Anyway, we would go to my granddad's in Temple, Texas. We'd, we'd go to the beach on the Gulf of Mexico to Galveston or Port Aransas, or we'd go to Colorado in the mountains or or to my dad's favorite place on earth, which was southeastern Oklahoma and the Mountain Fork River north of Lake Broken Bow, where I spent a large portion of my summers as a kid uh, fishing and on float trips with my dad in our canoe and running trot lines and just being hot and sticky and icky all summer long roughing it with my dad. Now, my idea of roughing it, frankly, is going someplace where they don't have room service. So being in a tent for a month running can be somewhat exhausting. But we'd make these trips in our great big station wagon. And those long trips, especially like the trips to Colorado, could become boring. So here we are in the back. Before we even get to Wichita Falls, the questions would start flowing. Are we there yet? I got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Chuck, my brother, is hitting me. Mom, Dad, make him stop. Are we there yet? Drive faster. Are we there yet? Turn up the air conditioner. It's hot as blazes back here. There must have been times when Jesus got frustrated with his disciples like mom and dad would get frustrated with Chuck and me. I mean, there were times when we would stop, pull off to the side of the road, and dad would make room in the very back of the back of the station wagon for me to get there so Chuck and I would be separated by a bunch of stuff because we'd end up fighting like crazy. I'm sure Jesus wanted to say, all right, out of the pool, let's go. I'm sure Jesus would want to separate his disciples. Andrew over there, Peter there, and John, you in the back. I'm sure Jesus got frustrated and fed up with his disciples. What were you arguing about along the way, he asked them at one point when they got their cup them. They were quiet. They didn't say a word. For they had been arguing about who was the greatest. They were silent. They were embarrassed. And they should be. The whole argument was stupid. And it, it pretty much is the same argument that Christians have been having for centuries. Which is the greatest church? Which is the better denomination? You hear this all the time. You hear this from preachers and from lay people. All the time. Which is the better church? Which is the best kind of church? What's the best style of worship? I got friends who are traditionalists only. They like traditionalist music, like traditional liturgy, like traditional worship. And I got other friends who wouldn't be caught dead in a traditional service. They prefer contemporary music and contemporary things, not stuff that was written over 100 years ago or more. 
I, I had an interesting conversation with friends of mine who love the liturgy of the church, and I said, you do realize that the Gloria Patri and the doxology are the praise music of the early church, don't you? No different from the stuff that we put on the screen in contemporary worship services today. There are lots of arguments, lots of disagreements. Which is the best church? Which is the best kind of denomination? I mean, there's a, here's a nice list of them. Baptist. They dunk people and can't dance, as the old joke went. Well, they're great. All the people want to go to their church. Assembly of God. They can dance, but only in church. Presbyterians, they've got a lot of money and good education. Lutherans, they've got good potluck lunches, all that good sausage, and they can drink beer. Mm. Episcopalians, they've got fancy liturgies and robes. Church of Christ, shh, they think they're the only Christians. Roman Catholics, they've got the Pope and they've got Mary and all that other stuff. And Methodists, what about Methodists? There's an old southern joke that say that Methodists are Baptists who can read. <clears throat> Presbyterians are Baptists who can read and have air conditioning. And Episcopalians are Baptists who can read, have air conditioning. And wherever you get four of them together, you also have a fifth of scotch or something like that. But that's the old southern joke about the various different denominations. Of course, all the other Christians... All the other groups, they're all different from us. And we get comfortable with what we want, and we like what we want. We want to do things the way we want to do things. And we think that the way that we do it is the way it's always been done. I came here and I asked, why is your order of worship the way it is? Well, that's the way we've always done it, I was told. Wow. That's the way Christians are. That's the way preachers are. Get a whole bunch of them together. What do you find they're doing? They're saying they like the things the way they like, the way they like them. And of course, they start bragging about themselves and about their churches and about their accomplishments. What would Jesus say about us? What would Jesus say about the church today? In its fractured character, in its divided nature, in its arguments, in its disagreements, in its fighting, in its infighting, in its backbiting. What would the church say? What would Jesus say about the church, about his people today? What would Jesus' attitude be about Christians today? Probably the same as with his disciples then. All right, Alapool. All right. You over there, and you over there, stop talking, stop fighting. And no, none of you is better than any other. There is no greatest in the kingdom of God. Imagine that. They're arguing on the road about who is to be the greatest in the kingdom of God right after Jesus says that he's going to die. I'm sorry, that blows me away. Jesus said, okay, I have to die. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be arrested. I have to be convicted of crimes that I didn't commit. Then I've got to be tried before the Roman governor, and I've got to be convicted. i got to go to Golgotha. I have to die on a cross and be raised from the dead on the third day. 
And here they are arguing, oh, I'm better than you are. No, he's better than you are. I'm better than him too. Back and forth. They don't understand him. And they're afraid to ask questions of him after the smackdown that Peter got last week. And now they're arguing amongst themselves as the who is the greater. Like a bunch of preachers, get a bunch of pastors together at conference. It's a one-upmanship game. Who has the bigger church? Who has the better paying church? Who has the church with the biggest budget? Who has the church that pays the most salary or the best perks? Who has the more influential lay members in the congregation? Who has the best lay members on the board of whatever? I went to a church following a pastor once, not here, where I was told going in, okay, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, they're on various boards and agencies in the community. They're the most important people. You need to have them on your board. They never came to church. They didn't attend worship. They didn't give. But their name Ooh. Oh, pastors. They'll get into these arguments amongst themselves as to who's the better church, who's the greater church, the most influential church, best paying church. The disciples were just the same. Who's the better of them? Well, Peter walks on water. <laughs> yeah, and he sinks too. Huh. Levi, Matthew over there, he used to be a tax collector. Work for the government. He'd give us good influence in the government, right? No. He was a collaborator with the Romans. No, don't want to mess with him. James and John, they got a mom who will come and ask Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom. And they were known as the sons of thunder because they liked to call down lightning bolts from heaven on the people who disappointed, disappointed them and disagreed with them. Stay away from them. Thomas, he never believes anything you ever say. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? If I'd been Jesus, I would have said, all right, we're done. I'm over with. You're all fired. I'm going to go find new disciples. And I'm going to be careful about the job benefits I give them too. And the retirement benefits, oh yeah, I'm going to be careful about that too. If I'd been Jesus, thank God I wasn't Jesus. If I'd been Jesus, I'd have fired them all. Ignoring him, arguing on the road, about who is the greatest? What does Jesus do instead? Instead of firing them, what does Jesus do? It says he sits down and calls the twelve and says to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all. Yuck. You couldn't tell that by looking at the church today. And yeah, that's what Jesus says. You must be last of all. And notice he, he, he doesn't say, it might be a nice idea if you were last of all. It doesn't, he doesn't say, it, it would be helpful to you to be appeared to look like you're the last of all. It might be helpful if you parked the furthest away from the church so that people would notice that you're last of all or that you got into that line to have lunch over that fatted calf last of all so people will notice, oh, he's very humble. Yes, indeed. No, Jesus Jesus doesn't say that at all. He says you must be last of all. King Jimmy renders that as shall be. That's a little too polite. Must is the better rendering here. 
And it's an example of what in, in the New Testament Greek is called the future indicative imperative. While shall is a possible rendering, must gets to the idea completely. This is a commandment, friends. This isn't optional. Jesus doesn't say, if it feels good to you, be last. Jesus says, if you're going to be first in the kingdom of God, you must be last and servant of all. You must be last and servant of all. And to make sure that he'd gotten his point across, Jesus takes a little child and put among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. I'm reminded of our stained glass window over here. Jesus sitting there, a child on his lap, two other children near him. Jesus places in the center and puts in his, on his knee, on his lap, in front of them, taking the child into his arm. He makes in the center and a first position the very last in the society of the time. And indeed, the very last in our world too. Children. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Hmm. We are called to welcome the last, the least, and the lost. We are called to welcome the little children of the world, be they physical little children or adult little children of the world. We are called to welcome the last, to greet them, to welcome them, to incorporate them, welcome them into our family, welcome them into our embrace, welcome them into the safety of the church, of the community of faith, welcome them into the kingdom of God. And when we do that and serve as Jesus calls us to serve, we're welcoming Jesus into our midst. And we're welcoming God, the creator of this universe, into our midst. The faith, the Christian faith, is active. Active in reaching out with the love of God for and to all. Active in reaching out with the grace of God for and to all. Especially to the little ones of this world. Especially to all who come like a child to hear the good news of the love of God. I can remember as a kid being privileged to stand in church, not on the floor, but on the pew while singing hymns so I could see and look around. I knew I was welcomed. I knew I was loved. I knew I was accepted. Even when I was naughty, I knew it. 
that I was loved and accepted and welcomed. Jesus tells us that we are to welcome the little child. And if we are to be great in the kingdom, we must welcome the little child. We must serve. We must give of ourselves that which we have received. We have no choice. It is not an option. It is a commandment, an imperative. Must be last, he said. Must be last. Thank God Jesus didn't kick out the disciples. Because if Jesus would be willing to work with this bunch of failures, Jesus is willing to work with us. If Jesus was willing to call and to work with Peter and Andrew, James and John, Thomas, and yes, even Judas, if if Jesus was willing to work with this bunch of failures who would deny Him and run from Him and betray Him and demand the best seat in the kingdom and doubt Him and confront Him. So wrong. And Jesus still loved them. Having denied Him three times and then run away When the angel spoke to Mary Magdalene, he said, after the resurrection of Jesus, he said, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen from the dead. He singled out Peter who had denied Jesus three times before others at the trial. He singled him out. Even though he had run from him and denied him and said exactly the opposite, done exactly the opposite of what he said he would do, The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen from the dead. Jesus didn't kick out those disciples. We might have. Jesus didn't. And thank God. For we are just like them. We get into arguments and squabbles and fights amongst the church amongst churches, within churches, and denominations. We have fights at general conference, fights at annual conference, fights at district conference, fights in our own local churches, disagreements, arguments, personal rivalries, all of which do not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of which are a shame, our shame, on the gospel of Jesus Christ and harm our ability to proclaim that gospel to the world. And yet, in His grace, God does not kick us out. But instead, like He loved His disciples and cared for His disciples and called His disciples, cherished His disciples and taught His disciples, fed His disciples and forgave His disciples, so also He calls us, cherishes us, feeds us, leads us and forgives us too when we go astray, when we stumble, when we fail, when we fail to be the kind of proclaimers of the gospel we're called to be, when we fail to speak a word of peace and grace to others, when we judge others, when we pay more attention to the speck in their eyes rather than the log in our own, when we open our mouths and speak words that harm rather than heal, 
that reject rather than accept, which condemn rather than lift up. And we do things we should not do. Nevertheless, Jesus doesn't kick us out. Instead, He gathers us in, He loves us, He cherishes us, He forgives us, He picks us up, He dusts us off, and He gives us the grace we need to start over again. He gives us the love we need to say yes again to His love. He gives us the grace, what we call in Methodism, prevenient grace, leading to justifying grace, leading to sanctifying grace. He gives us the grace that goes ahead of us, that forgives us, and then transforms us. He gives us the grace we need to correct, to change, and to move on. The calling we have is clear. We must be last. We must be servant of all. We must welcome a little child in the name of Jesus. We must reach out with God's love. For when we do this, we're reaching out to Jesus. We're responding to His call. We're obeying and trusting in His Word. And we're sharing that grace and that love that we have received with all. We can easily get astray. We can easily get off the path. We can easily get into the quabbling and squabbling and disagreements that the disciples were in on that road. It's easy to do it. It's easy to stumble. It's easy to open our big mouths and to say things we shouldn't say. It's easy to think we're more important. But God's grace makes it possible for us to turn away from that and instead turn towards Jesus and turn towards the last and the least and the lost of this world and turn towards the children of this world and to offer grace and love, hope and faith to all. It's easy to get off track, just like the disciples did. It's easy to squabble in the back of God's station wagon. It's easy to forget that it's Jesus who's in charge, not us. It's easy to forget that it's the kingdom of God, not ours. We must turn from this and offer God's grace to all. Offer God's peace to all. And welcome the little children into the kingdom of God's love. Into the kingdom of God's grace. Into the kingdom of God's peace. Jesus was clear. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Let us be welcoming one such child 
Let us be welcoming as a servant our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us be welcoming as the servant of God, the servant of all, the one who created this whole world, this whole universe, by welcoming and offering grace to one such child. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And may the children of God say, Amen.